Hey, good morning, everyone. It's Pastor Rob. About a week and a half ago on Thursday night, I was watching the first round of this year's the 2021 NFL Draft. And the reason was simple. The reason is I'm a Buckeye, Buckeye fan, and love me or hate me for it, because that seems to be one of the two ends of the spectrum. I went to Ohio State. It's kind of in the blood. I'm a fan of Ohio State. But I was watching to see if OSU's quarterback, Justin Fields, was taken early or where he was going to go in the draft. He was listed by most experts as among the top two or three best quarterbacks coming out this year. I wanted to see where he would end up and who he would end up with. And Justin didn't get picked in the first two or three picks. He actually didn't get picked until pick number 11. People say he fell to number 11. I'm like, he fell to 11? That's not very far, right? Out of 260-some picks that occur over a three-day period, 11's pretty high. But when he was picked 11th, and the the whole point of bringing this up, is that when he was picked 11th, the cameras switched over to his house where he was watching the draft with his family. And I assume the team had called him already and said they were going to draft him. It was the, the Chicago Bears. They traded up for him. But when they when they, he got on camera and they were like, how do you feel? Are you ready? Are you ready to go? What do you think about being drafted by the Bears? Excitement was not the word I would use. Right? He was not like, yes, I would have been. Yes, somebody, somebody's going to pay me to play football. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Right, It's all relative. I understand that. But he was very, very serious, very determined. I wouldn't say he was you know, mad at, at the team that picked him. But, but I kind of got the feeling he was mad at the 10 teams that didn't. The 10 that came before that number 11 pick that chose not to pick him and and it was almost kind of like y'all got this wrong you should have picked me sooner and and maybe even a little bit of and you're going to pay for it kind of thing right but when nfl teams pick certain players there is an absolutely an element of risk to it because They are, you never know what somebody's going to be able to do for your team or with your team until they actually play. You still have to play the game. You still have to do the practice. You still have to be prepared. You still have to do all those things. But those teams put in a ton of time and energy into researching players before they decide who they're going to pick. They talk to their friends. They talk to their coaches and their teammates and former teammates that they have connections with. They go to what's called a pro day where they watch them basically show off and work through a set of of activities. They go until this last year, they would have gone to a combine where they could literally compare them to other players at their same positions and and their skill sets and their how fast they run and athletic abilities and I'm dropping things and all the above. But they do that and they put in all that time and energy and research because for the, the, the coach and the general manager and the management staffs of those organizations, there's a lot on the line. And making the wrong decision could really cost them. Uh, certainly could cost them success on the field. Uh, certainly would cost them money, millions of dollars, because the truth is when your team is doing well, there are more fans on the bandwagon and they are buying more 
jerseys and they're coming to more games and they're watching more television and making more commercial revenue, it all adds up. So when you're playing well, there's more money to be made. And when you're not playing as well, you make less. That's just the nature of sports, professional sports. But for them individually, those, those coaches and, and managers, when they make those decisions, it, if they're wrong, it could cost them their job. They could lose their livelihood. And, and ultimately, it could cost them their credibility in their industry among their peers. Uh, because if you've got a, a track record of making the wrong choice on the important decisions, um, nobody wants you to lead their organization anymore. As we are finishing up our series unlikely disciple as we're walking through the life and ministry of the apostle Peter. I think one of the things that we can see as a theme in Peter's life is that he regularly made the wrong decision on the big things, like on a regular basis. If you read through the gospels, much of Peter's story as he's learning from the Lord and following the Lord is, is our mistakes. They are one one verse. Jesus is is telling Peter, "Hey, you're starting to understand this gospel thing. That's amazing. I great you understand." And a a couple verses later, he's telling calling Peter Satan and saying, "Stand behind me, Satan, because you are getting in the way of what I'm trying to do. You still don't understand." And we 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 talked about in the in the Garden of Gethsemane is that the guards are coming to to take Jesus and imprison him as Holy Week is moving forward and he eventually will be crucified, Peter jumps forward and tries to stop it again and cuts off a guard's ear and Jesus heals the guard, puts the ear back on, brings him a new, or builds him a new ear. And, and it's kind of, Peter, no, you're still not getting this. This is where we need to go. And then we talked about Peter denying Jesus three times, even though he swore he would never do such a thing. And he even cost Jesus money, and that's a story we hadn't talked about yet. In Matthew 17, one of the um, tax collectors for the temple comes up to Peter and he says, hey, does your leader pay the temple tax? Because apparently you have to pay this tax in order to be able to be present during ceremonies or to teach or to do any of those things. It's one of the reasons why Jesus was flipping over tables too, <laughs> because people were taking advantage, right, for the, just to make a profit. But he says, do you pay this temple tax? And Peter, without talking to Jesus, says, yeah, yeah, he pays the temple tax. And two verses later, Peter's going, are you kidding me? I do not pay the temple tax. We do not need to do this. And sends Peter off to go fishing. <laughs> it's kind of, get away from me. Go fishing. When you catch a fish, there's going to be two gold coins in its mouth. Only Jesus could do this. Bring it back and you pay the man, right? You work for it. You pay him and just to get him off our backs. Last week, though, last week, we talked about the arrival of someone who was intended to change all of those wrong mistakes, those big errors that, that Peter was making. And that's the presence of Holy Spirit, right? As Holy Spirit arrived, it's designed to, to change the way he sees the world, interacts the world. Holy Spirit is his advocate. It's his counselor. And it's the counselor that all the disciples now have access to. And we saw this miraculous moment where the spirit rushed in like a, a, a wind and kind of overtook the room. And then, and then it caused them to be able to speak in languages they never learned and just kind of blow away the crowd around them and, and be witnesses to the gospel. And 
And so they have access to Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we have access to. And, and one would think that that would mean that at least in the big places that Peter would stop getting it wrong, that he would stop making mistakes because now he's got Holy Spirit to watch out for him. Unfortunately, that's not true. And I think if as followers of Christ, at least me personally, I can tell you um, Holy Spirit guides, Holy Spirit corrects, Holy Spirit sometimes can't save me from myself when I continue to make bad choices. And that's really because I and, and Peter and really most of us, we have baggage. We have baggage that we bring into the relationship that we're building with the Lord and building with Holy Spirit. We have ba human baggage that we bring with us. We have deeply ingrained thoughts and feelings that represent our broken humanness that we've learned over time uh, and not really learned from God. We talked about one of those things uh, a couple series ago in our series Neighborhood Watch in Acts, the book of Acts chapter 10, where Peter, who has access to Holy Spirit now, um, is forced to confront some of his, his biases and his prejudices that he doesn't realize are a problem because he's having a, a problem seeing people as God sees them. He still kind of thinks that Jesus is just here for the Jews. And God has to really open his eyes and remind him, no, I'm here for the world. He even argues with God about it. And, and, and so that's more baggage, right? He's arguing with God over something that he, God is telling him and he should know better. And ultimately, he has to learn to see people that way too. Today, we're going to look at a couple more times that Peter, after finding access to Holy Spirit, really, and really not just Peter, but the church as a whole, all of the disciples, they struggled to get rid of their baggage. They struggled to lay it aside so they could learn and grow. And, and it, what it took, really, and this is important for us to understand, is encounters with other believers. In, in fact, newer believers. Encounters with them to point it out. And I think... Peter clearly had this direct relationship with God and, and, and our relationships with God are very, very direct. I have an absolute connection with him just as you do. And your connection, if you are a follower of Christ, is no different than mine. But God also created the church and created the church in such a way to allow us an opportunity to learn from one another as the Holy Spirit moves in those around us. And so today, we're going to see how Peter and the church as a whole really have to deal with some of those things. To do that, we're going to look at two different books of the Bible. We're going to bounce back and forth. So I'm going to try to keep it straight for my sake and for yours. But we're going to bounce back and forth between the book of Acts and the book of Galatians. And the reason is this, is that from a time frame perspective, they cover the same kind of time frames. They describe some of the same events from different perspectives. The book of Acts is written by Luke, an observer outside of the situation who's watching it from afar. And the book of Galatians is written by the apostle Paul, who's part of a lot of these situations. It's going to cover a time frame in the book of Acts from 
a year, simply a year after Pentecost. So, so Peter and the disciples have only had a, a relationship with Holy Spirit for a year. Um, all the way up to the end, as we get into Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, where they've known that Holy Spirit had been walking with him and watched Jesus work and done miracles on his behalf for 15, 16 years. And they are still in need of work, in need of work. As we get into Acts chapter 9, that's where we're going to start today. In Acts chapter 9, in the early parts of Acts chapter 9, we meet someone named Saul. Saul is a persecutor of Christians. He essentially works for the Jewish establishment. And they're not, they weren't fans of Jesus to begin with, if you know his story. Um, and they're certainly not fans of his disciples and what they're teaching. And Saul clearly has one job. Uh, his job is to persecute and eliminate Christians. That's his job. And he is known for jailing them. He's known for killing them. Uh, and so he's killed the friends and the brothers and the sisters and the family of many of the apostles and the disciples. That's who he was and what his role was. He's not exactly the kind of guy you would find hanging out with a Christian. And that was really the focus of much of his life. And he took pride in his work and did it well and believed, honestly, that he was doing the right thing. We meet Saul uh, around, again, a year after Pentecost, 34 AD. And he has this experience at the beginning of Acts chapter 9 where he is on the road to Damascus to go persecute some more people, more Christians. <laughs> and God literally blinds him blinds him and speaks to him. And Jesus shows up and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why? And Paul is forced, he's blinded and forced to recognize just how spiritually blind he has been, how mistaken he has been. And so he's had, you know, one of those moments where that we you, you read about or maybe you've had where you're just like, Paul's the shining example of the light of Jesus shining on you and changing who you are in the blink of an eye, right? In this dramatic, powerful moment. And the reason I'm not reading through it in the scripture is honestly, you need to read it for yourself. I can't do that moment justice. But Paul is blinded and he goes on to Damascus and through a series of events orchestrated by God, he finds his sight. His sight is restored to him. And then as we continue through Acts, the first part of Acts chapter 9, we see that Paul spends the next three years in and around Damascus preaching the gospel. Verses, chapter 9 verse 21 says he's in the synagogue proclaiming Jesus and saying he is the son of God, where before he was persecuting them. This is very different from who he was before. We see him astounding, that's the word that the CSB uses, literally astounding others, all who heard him speak, and confounding the Jews in Damascus by, quote, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we've got this, this guy, Saul, who is, now has a new name. He's renamed Paul because he is a new creation. He is totally different. He is transformed as God has transformed him. And that's where we're going to pick up our story it's going to be in Acts chapter 9, the last half of the chapter. It's going to be verses 
26 through 30, as Paul, four, this is four years after the arrival of Holy Spirit to Peter and the other disciples, and three years after Paul has seen the Lord and come to know him and had access to that same Holy Spirit. And Paul is brought to Jerusalem by a friend, by Barnabas. And they're gonna meet, he's gonna meet Peter and the other disciples and the apostles for the first time. Let's, let's see how they react. Read with me in Acts chapter nine, verses 26 through 30. It says this, when he arrived in Jerusalem, that's Saul or Paul, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Imagine that. He's been killing off all their friends and family and chasing them down for years. They're a little bit leery. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and he debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. When Paul Saul first arrives, the disciples are suspicious, right? They're kind of going, is this for real? I mean, we've heard about you. I've seen you do some of the things you've done, right? I know who you were. This, this, are you sure this is real or just some kind of plot or ploy, right? And, and I have to confess, you know, I think... Sometimes, if, if you know someone's history, and if I've known someone's history, who they were before they came to know the Lord, it is very hard sometimes to separate who they were before with who they could be now. We bring, again, our baggage, our own preconceived notions based on those experiences, who they are, who they were. And, and I feel like I have to see it with my own eyes before I'm going to believe it. I think that's just human nature in general, right? We have a distrust for things we don't understand or don't that don't match up with what we already know. And, and we have to see it first before we buy it. And on some levels, that's okay. It, it's, it's critical thinking. It's, it's called discernment. The Bible has a word for it. And it's about really processing all of those different inputs and realities and making the decision that... God would have you make ultimately is the goal, but discernment is a thing. It's okay to, to critically process and to ask questions and to, to wonder, I think. Um, but Barnabas teaches that Peter, who most scholars agree was here with the other disciples at this time, teaches Peter and the, and the apostles to discern differently. In fact, he challenges them to discern as God might discern with mercy and grace and hope and to look and say, look what he's been doing for the last three years. Barnabas, is his name means the encourager. He's known as an encourager of others. And, and Barnabas has seen a glimpse. He has heard from many witnesses from all over Damascus. He's seen some of it for himself, that doesn't substitute for the disciples and the other apostles seeing it, but he has seen much of this and Barnabas dares to believe and desires Peter and the apostles to do the same, dares to believe that he has been changed. 
I think Barnabas dares to believe because this is a truth that we sometimes have trouble grasping. Jesus allows us to be restored before we are perfected. And sometimes we have difficulty allowing that in others. The truth is, Paul's entire life after coming to know the Lord, his entire Christian walk, he is constantly fighting with other disciples and fighting over this reputation he had in a previous life, who he was before he was born again, before he was rebirthed, before he was regenerated, renewed, before he became a follower of the Lord and knew knew Jesus Christ. And, And it's interesting to me that he continues to have that struggle even as Paul is planting churches all over Asia. Paul is speaking and proclaiming the things of God everywhere. They're still in the back of their minds, this kind of, but we remember what you did. We have a record of that. We know what you did. And it's a very personal thing for Paul, I think. In in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the many books of the New Testament that are written by Paul, um, 1 Corinthians 13 is something many people call the love chapter. And, and parts of it is verses 4 and 5 in particular, 4 through 7 I believe in particular, are verses that we read often at weddings. But they, they really don't have a lot to do with weddings or even um, that kind of relationship. What they have to do with is different believers and how they are treating one another, how they love one another. And, and, he, and he starts off in, in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1 talking about the importance of love, how we love one another. And he says in verse 1, if I, if I speak a human or angelic tongues, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, no matter what I do or say, if it doesn't involve love, it doesn't matter. And then he goes on to describe what love between two followers of the Lord really is. He says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, and check this one, it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love truthfully does not keep a record of wrongs. It does not keep a record of what someone did a while back particularly what they did before they came to know the Lord. Although I think you could pretty credibly argue that means even after they've come to know the Lord, because again, even with Holy Spirit's help, we still mess up. But that the word for record, for keeping a record, um, and actually the Greek means not reckon the bad is the phrasing, right? You're not reckoning the bad uh, legozomai is the, the word for reckon. And it's a word commonly used at, by an accountant in a ledger, right? As you're, you're taking in debits and credits, you're writing down and making a permanent record of transactions that have occurred. And that's, that's kind of the way we kind of view most of our relationships, truthfully. We view them as a series of transactions, right? And you do for me, I do for you. It's kind of this uh, back and forth and back and forth. And we make this mental kind of I don't know, (laughs) calculation regarding whether or not we should or shouldn't trust somebody. And that, again, that's discernment working. That's critical thinking working. That's okay. Jesus doesn't want you to not think, right? He just wants us to think as God would think. And that's that's where we get into trouble. So it would have been easy 
for the the disciples, and many of them were as we started this text, right, in, in verse 26, it would have been easy for them to justify keeping a record of Paul's wrongs. You killed my friends, you killed my family, you, you made me live in fear. That's a tough thing to put aside, right? That's pretty much written probably literally in blood in their records, right? They, I, know who you, I know who you are. And so they don't want to trust him. But Barnabas is saying, look, if, if we really believe that Christ renews, that Christ changes, that he is not the same person that he was. And by the way, look at what he's doing. It may, you may not have seen it for yourself. It may not be the thing that you would do, but look at him trying, doing his best to come from where he was to where he is now. He is clearly a different person. And you might say to yourself, well, I don't, I don't, I don't do that. I don't keep a record of wrongs. I don't, I don't bear a grudge that way. You know, I'm willing to give everybody a second chance. And in some respects, you know, I think that's the case. Some of us do struggle with that. I have a friend that I grew up with. Um, we're still good friends, but I've known him since I was five. And, um, when we were about 12, we were in the sixth grade together, and there were actually three of us that were all friends together. And um, the other friend uh, said something mean about my current friends, who's still my friends, said something mean about his sister. Something he shouldn't have said, something stupid that a middle schooler would say, okay? And honestly, my friend, the brother of that, that young lady, never forgave him. And as of, I haven't talked to him about it in probably 20 years. We still talk, but not about that. But as of 20 years ago, we still hadn't forgiven him. And that's, that's bearing a grudge. And the truth is, if we are really honest with ourselves, I think there are, are some people in our lives that we feel like they've done something to us that we could just never forgive. And that may not be the case. She may not have that. But for some, that's true. And, and to, to be very clear... That's not okay. That is not the person God calls us to be. That is not seeing people as God sees them. That's not discerning as God would discern with grace and hope and mercy. But I think there's a more subtle way that we, we keep a record of wrongs or we hold a grudge. And, and, and work with me for a second. You know, if you have ever been in a difficult situation with somebody and you feel like you've gotten through it and you're over it, Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a good friend, maybe it's one of your kids or your parent, whatever that may be. And you feel like you've gotten over it. And then something happens. Something happens that is similar to what used to happen or did happen before. It's kind of a trigger event. And this flood of emotions and memories come back and all of a sudden that ledger you were keeping in your head gets dusted off right you had put it away and said no we're not worried about this anymore it gets dusted off and you open it wide up and you're like oh, now i remember and this flood this bygones are no longer bygones and all these memories are dredged up then if that's the case right then maybe we do keep a record of wrongs more than we think problem, though, is that as followers of Christ, as saved individuals, we are beneficiaries of a Savior 
that did no such thing. In fact, he died for us while we were still wrong, right? Romans 5 verse 8 says he died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies. He didn't wait till we had it figured out, till we had everything perfected before he was willing to restore us. He said, no, 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 I know you're wrong. I get that. But I want to offer you restoration anyways. He even prayed for God as he was dying on the cross in Luke chapter 23. He prayed for those who were persecuting him in the moment and said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Our Lord didn't keep an indelible record of wrongs. And he doesn't open the book back up and dust it off when we mess up. And honestly, what he's calling us to do is the same. And the truth is keeping such a record of wrongs. Um, that happens because the offense is personal. We don't seem to have that issue if it doesn't connect to us personally. We don't seem to bear a grudge against somebody who's done something to somebody else. But if they, unless they are family or friend or we're already close to them and it's become personal. But keeping that record because the offense is personal, it really says something about the selfishness of our hearts and our lack of appreciation for the restoration that Jesus has afforded us, even though we're not perfect yet. Our second encounter we're gonna look at is 16 years after Pentecost. You would think after 16 years of doing anything, we'd have it down, right? That Peter would have it down. But we're gonna look at that in Galatians chapter 10. This is actually the third encounter that they've had with, that Peter and Paul have had with one another. There's another one in the first part of Galatians chapter two that's also discussed in Acts chapter 11. Remember, it's kind of a back and forth thing. But, but this time, as we look at this situation, instead of Saul going to Jerusalem where the other disciples were, this time Peter comes to Paul in the, in the city of Antioch as Paul is planting churches. Again, 16 years after the arrival of Holy Spirit. 16 years after making, doing the big wrong things, I guess should have ended, right? And it's Galatians chapter two, verses 11 through 14. And I'm thinking, as you read this, think about in the middle of this discussion, I'm thinking Peter probably wishes he hadn't come to Antioch, okay? Probably wishes he hadn't come here. So let's read, it says this, but when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. <laughs> you walk through the front door and say, hey, Paul, what's up? And Paul says, oh yeah? <laughs> it's not the welcome you were hoping for, I would imagine. Says, start in verse 12. He says, for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and he separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined in his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas felt led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul refers to him as Cephas. If you listen to the, the first uh, message in this series, we recognize that that term, it's the Aramaic term for Peter, uh, the name given to 
Peter to him by Jesus. His name was Simon before he was renamed, just as Saul had been renamed Paul. And the name means a little rock, right? It's just a rock by the side of the road. Um, it's The Greek translation would be Petros. It's just, just any old pebble on the side of the road, nothing special, nothing amazing, rather than Petros, which is the Greek word that he's later referred to, or at least the Gospels referred to, the, the big cornerstone, the thing that really, really, really matters. Um, and, and is there? I wonder though, and it's not stated specifically, so I wouldn't go too far with it. But I wonder um, if 16 years in, being called the little pebble, the little rock, has a meaning to it. It's a recognition that. Peter is still not the big foundation that God is calling him and frankly all of us to be, even with access to Holy Spirit, even this far into his walk with Jesus. And so it does indicate to me that Peter is 16 years in still learning, still growing, still trying to get rid of the baggage he brought to the relationship and still being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so Paul, who quite frankly, in our previous scenario, was availing himself to the apostles, trying to gain their approval, is now turned around and now he's all up in Peter's face. And he's calling him a hypocrite, publicly and openly in his grill, calling, other, calling him a hypocrite. Now, I will note that my firm belief is that wherever and however possible, you praise in public and you criticize in private. I'm not a big fan of calling everybody out. Um, but Paul feels like this is important enough that he is willing to do just that. Calling out this hypocrisy, this behavior that contradicts what Peter claims to believe or feel. It's... It's, it'd be something similar to someone who's a, a vegetarian as a matter of conscience, but when no one's looking, they eat bacon, right? Because they've told you, I'm a vegetarian because I don't believe we should kill animals, but when you're not looking, they eat bacon anyways, that kind of deal. That's kind of hypocritical. And keep in mind also, this is after the events of Acts chapter 10 that we looked at at the early part of this sermon where we talked about, and we looked at several months ago as well, where Peter had that vision and fought with God and argued with God. This is after that, Peter should and did recognize that there was no difference in God's eyes between Jew and Gentile, that they must be treated as one and the same. And the truth is that Paul and Peter himself in Acts chapter 11 goes to the disciples, goes to the other apostles in Jerusalem and defends the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles. But yet, when certain men, in fact, that's what it says, when certain men who are from James, which means from Jerusalem, from the home office of the church, are watching, he is different. He changes. It says, simple reason, he feared them. He feared their human judgment. He feared maybe the power they wield. Maybe he feared not fitting in. And, and sometimes, you know, that, that can even happen amongst 
body Christians even today where we see others being led by the Spirit, but they don't act or don't respond out of fear for how someone else might act or might treat them or might see them. And it certainly happens in their workplaces too, where we don't do certain things, we don't proclaim Jesus outwardly and openly because we are afraid of what others might think. We've talked about that agnosium, although I'll keep talking about it because I think we're supposed to be the kind of bold witness that does isn't hamstrung by that kind of fear. But Peter's big problem in, in Paul's eyes, the biggest problem here isn't necessarily his individual hypocrisy, although that's a big deal. It's really the effect that that hypocrisy has on others because Peter's actions are contagious. It said in verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined this his hypocrisy, that even Barnabas, who was one of Paul's partners in spreading the gospel and the man who presented him to the, to the Jerusalem Council had just been correcting them, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You know, in life, each of us has role models. Um, the behavior that we're trying to, people who act in a way that we are trying to emulate, right? We're trying to emulate their behavior or their example or their success. And, and Peter, as, I, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, Peter is one of the, he was there with Jesus. He, he learned directly from Jesus. He was there as Jesus was hung on the cross. He literally saw the resurrected Christ, right? He was there at Pentecost. He saw all of those things happen. And, and, and certainly as other others were coming to know the Lord, I would imagine when Peter walked in the room, there was probably a, he's one of them, right? He's one of the 12. He's one of the ones who saw Jesus. And so there's this, this natural kind of, that's the guy I want to be like. I, I, I want to know what he knows. I want to hear what he see, he's heard. I want to see what he sees. I want to experience what he's experienced. I want to be able to do what he wants, what he can do. And, and, and I want to know the Lord as he knows the Lord. So it's a natural state that he's the role model. And so his actions would have an effect on everyone else around him. The problem is, though, for us that we need to understand is that it's not just Peter that's a role model. The truth is, whether we are comfortable with it or not, we are role models. We are role models to our children. We are role models to each other. We are role models to our coworkers. The truth is, whatever behaviors we model, whatever we choose to do, whether they are hypocritical, right? If we say one thing and do another, or if we say it and we're genuine and we do it, we act as we say we're going to act and treat others as we say they should be treated, no matter what. All of those actions tell something, tell those around us about who our role model is, about his character, about his love, and about his faithfulness. It tells others who our savior is. And so, when Paul gets up in Peter's face, it's not out of anger. Well, it might be, he might be angry, but it's not out of hate or not out of disdain or even not out of a place where 
He thinks he's better than Peter. He certainly does not. If you've read any of other Paul's other letters, Paul absolutely recognizes that he is anything but perfect, that he continues to struggle with issues. But Paul is willing to speak to Peter like this because he loves Jesus, because he wants Peter to grow, and because truthfully, Paul is willing to take the same kind of correction as he grows. The truth is, when it's all said and done, we are all unlikely and unworthy disciples. We all are imperfect. We are all messed up and we are all a work in progress. But one of the things in our individualistic world where we are now, where we kind of, everybody does their thing and they do mine and don't judge me and don't talk to me and don't, is it that we eliminate this valuable gift that the disciples themselves, those who I think you could pretty credibly argue knew God pretty well, <laughs> knew Jesus pretty well and were teaching what he wanted him to te- them to teach, even they were willing to listen to one another. Even they were willing to have their minds changed. Even someone like the apostle Peter who had been there and done that and seen it all was willing to be corrected at times. That kind of humility and that kind of willingness to be open with one another to help one another grow in Christ is what we need. And no, this isn't some statement about how we should grow start pointing out all of each other's mistakes. That's not what it's about. But it is to say that we need to be willing to recognize that Holy Spirit moves not just through me, but through you. It moves through others who call Christ their Lord and Savior. And it is the Holy Spirit that speaks through them with wisdom and love and strength that sometimes challenges us and sometimes pushes us, but is absolutely God-ordained and absolutely necessary for us to grow as his people. And Peter teaches us that we should never stop listening for Holy Spirit to not just come to us directly, but to come from others who also love him. That is so critical to our journey. If you're not in any kind of connected relationship where you're willing to openly talk about your difficulties and your challenges with one another. Maybe it's, it's doubts in your faith or it's, it's, it's issues you're struggling with or things you're having problems with and you're trying to be on, in a silo kind of handling it all by yourself. Please stop. Please connect yourself with someone who can help you walk through those things. If you need help doing that, call us, shoot me an email, let me know. Um, we would love to help you connect with people who can help you come to know the Lord and who you can help too. Let me pray for you as we close today. Father God, we are so thankful for your mercies and your strength and your grace. And we are thankful for your son who came for us. We've spent these last several weeks studying the life of your child, your apostle Peter, who declared you mightily and boldly before the world who we've seen be transformed, but recognize that his whole life was a process of transformation. And so is ours. 
Lord, I pray that we will have hearts that are open to your movement. We will have hearts that are open to seeing your Holy Spirit moving in others, that we will be a sponge that soaks up your wisdom and soaks up your love and soaks up your understanding of others and of this world so that we may see with your eyes and hear with your ears and feel with your heart and that we may be with the witnesses that you are calling us to be. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Peter and the other disciples. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son and thank you for your love and your mercy and your faithfulness. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray, amen, amen, and amen. God bless.